ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, FP's national security reporter and your host of Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring our recent foreign policy live event on Russia's troop buildup near Ukraine and the prospects for war. You'll hear me joining the call from the Ukrainian capital of Kiev and former intelligence officer Andrea Kendall-Taylor in conversation with FP's editor-in-chief Ravi Agrawal. Just a heads up that this event was recorded last Thursday and in this fast-changing crisis some aspects of our conversation may have been taken over by recent events. And here now is our recording of the event, FP Live from Kiev. Hello and welcome to a foreign policy live event where we're going to explore the latest on the Russia-Ukraine crisis and what happens next. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy, and it's my pleasure to be your host for the next 30 minutes. I have two great guests to bring to you today, one of whom is our very own Amy McKinnon, live from Kiev. Now, FP Live discussions, for those of you who are new to this, are where we bring experts and insiders to discuss issues in the news, unlike cable TV, there are no ad breaks and we get to dive deep into the issues. As always, it's a perk of your FP subscription that you get to ask questions too. So click on the Q&A button on Zoom and write in. I'm never, uh, I never cease to be amazed at the, um, the expert questions that we get in from you, our viewers. Don't forget to tell us your name and which country you're in. So on to our topic today. It's been another busy week of diplomacy. Um, but this time it's also been paired with shows of diplomatic and military might. Russia held joint military exercises with Belarus, but since the two countries only just held similar exercises, the Zapad in September, analysts are seeing this as much more than that. It's an unprecedented display of might, really. Ukrainian forces conducted their own exercises at the same time, showing off their US-made Javelin missiles and other equipment provided by NATO countries. All of this, of course, comes amid a a frenzy of diplomatic talks involving several world players. French President Emmanuel Macron began the week in Moscow before heading to Kiev and then Berlin, where he met Chancellor Olaf Scholz, 
who had himself just come back from meeting President Biden in Washington. Meanwhile, Russia's Vladimir Putin was in Beijing last week for the Olympic Games there. And then he met Hungary's Viktor Orban and, of course, Macron. The question amid all of this remains the same. What happens next in Ukraine? What will Putin do? And how does the world prepare for that? I have two terrific guests to assess all of these questions. Amy McKinnon's back on FP Live. She's our national security correspondent. She spent the last week reporting out of Kiev. And Andrea Kendall-Taylor is a senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. She previously spent eight years as a senior intelligence officer, including a stint at the CIA, where she focused on Russia. It's a pleasure to have you both with us today. Welcome. Amy, let me start with you. Um, give us a sense of the mood in Kiev. There's, there's no panic on the streets, I hear, but on the other hand, it's clear that there's a lot of contingency planning going on. I also hear stores are sold out of bullets. Give us a sense of what you've seen this week. Well, good evening from Kiev, Ravi. Um, yeah, I mean, as you said, Kiev is very much still, on the surface at least, Kiev is very much still Kiev. You know, the bars are full, the cafes are full, the restaurants are full, and, and Ukrainians are going about their daily business. Um, but what has emerged in conversations this week is what I would say uh, is a kind of mood of, of quiet contingency planning amongst people. Um, on Saturday, I went to a training run by an NGO called the Ukrainian Women's Guard, um, which was vastly oversubscribed, and they were training uh, women in Kiev from all, all walks of life on things such as self-defense, on um, emergency planning, on, on what kind of plans to have, the necessity of having different plans for different contingencies, how to build a first aid kit, things, you know, how to filter water, things like that for in case things ever did get really bad in the event of a Russian attack. And, and people I speak to, you know, um, the mood is certainly different in Kiev. I think the sense of urgency is not quite the same as it is in Washington, um, but people are still um, planning things like, you know, people are saying they have, they've got a couple of jerry cans of petrol in the back of their car in case they have to leave quickly. Um, uh, people are a lot of people are making plans to go to Western Ukraine in the event that something does happen. And so generally calm on the surface, but behind the scenes, you know, people are kind of getting their plans laid just in case. Andrea, let's bring you in. Some of the latest reporting out of Russia, including in the Times, suggests that this could be a crisis that could last all year. In other words, the status quo of a stalemate of sorts could drag on. Um, but my understanding is that you think still that a major escalation is still likely. Um, why do you think that's the case? Yeah, it's important to underscore, I mean, as you said, that Putin has um, a whole bunch of different options at his disposal. He really has, you know, he is the kind of master of optionality. And certainly this long grind is one potential scenario where, you know, given the heightened uh, posture on the border, they continue to grind down the Ukrainian economy, wear it nerves at the West and kind of watch us negotiate amongst ourselves, kind of pulling at unity of the alliance. Um, but I do think kind of based on the military picture and the facts on the ground, um, that conflict seems more likely than not. And I say that because of the kind of, you know, hearkening back to my days as an intelligence analyst, you, you would have a number of indicators that you would expect to see before uh, a Russian military action. And we're kind of ticking through those um, in, in a quite uh, quick pace. You know, for, for example, we see um, the arrival of uh, Russian personnel to the border, and that's important because up until this point, Russia has pre-positioned a lot of equipment, but didn't necessarily have the people there to man it. Now we're seeing those numbers arriving in large mm -hmm. numbers. 
Um, as you've mentioned, this military exercise has started with Belarus. It will continue through uh, the 20th. Um, the military forces in Crimea are on their highest state of readiness. Uh, we're seeing um, the, the arrival of a lot of logistics, um, things that you would need um, to um, kind of sustain your posture there for a long time. Another key indicator is the arrival of the Rosgvardia, which is the National Guard, and those forces would be used in the event of an invasion where they would come in to hold territory. So when you kind of think through all of these different indicators, it does appear that we are kind of getting more proximate to a potential military escalation. But of course, as has been repeated over and over, you know, we don't know that Putin has made up his mind, but I'm afraid, um, you know, based on what we're seeing on the ground, that does seem the more likely scenario. That's right. Uh, upwards of uh, 100,000 troops speaks loudly. But um, I'm curious, Andrea, when you mentioned that there are X number of steps before, you know, actual uh, ordering of an invasion, what other steps are there between now and then? I, I mean, I think we're in the window, really. Um, I think, you know, the, the intelligence community, um, our U.S. national security officials have basically said that we could see a Russian invasion without any additional warning. So my sense is that, you know, they, you know, they, we heard about the um, intelligence briefing that happened last week that said they had about 70% of what they would need. Um, so I think really we're kind of in a, critical period where um, I don't think we should be surprised if we see Russia move forward with a military escalation at this juncture. Fascinating. Um, Amy, coming back to you, let's try and dig into how um, President Zelensky of Ukraine is handling this crisis so far. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, about three months ago, Kiev was raising the alarm um, and asking for aid and arms from allies. Then more recently, Zelensky's been saying, hey, let's, you know, chill out a little bit here. You know, let's not let's not go overboard. And then you have the military exercises this week. So is that is is it fair to say that this is a lot of mixed messaging? Um, and if that's the case, how are people um, in Ukraine seeing that play out? So that's one of the mysteries I've been trying to kind of dig into this week. And I've been asking everybody that I've been meeting with. And I think my I think there's several different things kind of going on with this mix, mixed messaging, and I think it falls into kind of two main categories. I think one is one is an issue of of messaging. Um, I think other is also though there. I think there is a difference on the threat perception. Um, on the messaging point, I mean, I think Zelensky is trying to speak to different audiences and I think he's sometimes calibrating his message for those different audiences um, but is not perhaps doing a very successful job of it I mean there was a, um, a a strange period earlier in the year where you know he met with Blinken and said one thing uh, you know and then he spoke to the Washington Post said another and then spoke to the Ukrainian people and said basically go about your business don't worry you know um, soon there will be spring and, and everyone will be out, will be out picnicking you know was, was um, uh, kind of paraphrasing here but that was you know picnicking was uh, uh, was definitely mentioned. Um, and so I think he's he's trying to, um, there seems to be um, a real effort to prevent panic amongst the population, because um, there's no, there's no planning going on. I mean, there's, in, you know, I'm here in Kiev, and certainly the, you know, the US assessments are that Kiev, you know, could be, a, could be targeted by the Russians. And there is no 
public planning going on. There's no telling people, here's what you do, here's where you go, here are the communications you listen to, you know, you know, gather any necessary medications you need, gather clean water. There's no kind of laying a contingency plan for the public just in case something does happen. And I think the reason of that is they, they really are keen to avoid mass panic, um, but they're also trying to avoid spooking the markets and spooking investors as well. Zelensky said that in his, his press conferences a couple of weeks ago that, um, you know, that came through very strongly was he was he was very concerned about how this was going to affect the Ukrainian economy. Um, I think they are also, however, keen to keep uh, US and European military aid coming. I mean, we've seen an unprecedented amount of aid uh, coming in from the US and Europe. Um, and I think that the Ukrainians have long been chomping at the bit for more support. And so, of course, they want to keep that keep that spigot of aid flowing. Um, and then I think there's, you know, I think there may be a difference in the threat perception. I mean, it is not 100% clear to me whether Zelensky is on the same page as the United States about the degree and the immediacy of the threat. And I, I, I don't think that he is. Um, and he, again, he kind of pretty much said that in his, his press conference a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, he said, we have our own intelligence agencies, you know, we, you know, we're used to living under this threat, but um, Ukrainian intelligence agencies also haven't been reformed. They're one of the unreformed state agencies, and there have long been concerns about infiltration of, of, of uh, Russian intelligence operatives there as well. So, um, you know, I have some questions about the type of intelligence that he's getting from, from the Ukrainian side as well. And I'm not sure, um, Andrea will be able to speak to this uh, uh, better than I can, but it's not clear to me the extent to which the U.S., there's obviously been a lot of intelligence sharing going on. The U.S. has been very forward with trying to warn Ukraine about the threat. Um, I'm not sure how candid they're able to be about going into the granular details mm. of what intelligence they have because, again, of those concerns about infiltration of the Ukrainian intelligence services. Well, let's put that to Andrea. Andrea, how, how candid have you been able to be in the past and, and, and uh, you know, how would you characterize intellig intelligence sharing today? Yeah, I mean, I think Amy's right that there are definitely limits and constraints on what the U.S. intelligence community is able to share with their Ukrainian counterparts. Um, we've seen, though, that this administration has been quite forward-leaning, um, both, you know, in sharing intelligence with allies, uh, in large part trying to get everyone singing from the same sheet of music so that we do see the threat in the same light. Um, we've also seen a lot of declassification of intelligence to try to eliminate the um, ability of the Kremlin to use the element of surprise or to generate these pretexts for invasion. So I think there's a, a recognition, there's been some lessons learned in the past in the US intelligence community about um, you know, the need and the desirability of being forward leaning while protecting sources and methods of sharing that intelligence. I do think it's notable though, when you look at the differences in um, the extent of alarm between the Five Eyes countries, which where you really have a much freer uh, flow of information, you know, think about the UK and its willingness. They seem to be very much in lockstep with where the United States is relative uh, to, you know, our Ukrainian counterparts who probably are not seeing exactly the same intelligence and therefore um, are seeing uh, a bit of a different picture. Um, Andrea, um, uh, our own Jack Detch had a piece in FP this week detailing how Russia's state-owned media organizations have unleashed disinformation targeting Spanish language speakers. Um, this is over the course of January, essentially putting out Kremlin propaganda on Ukraine. Um, and then meanwhile, and perhaps more galling, we also have Russian senators citing Fox News and Fox News commentator Tucker Carlson's claims that it's not Russia that's provoking war, it's the West, it's America, it's NATO. 
Um, you've, of course, followed, um, you know, Russian propaganda and disinformation um, for so long. Um, I guess this is all of a piece. Is it surprising? And also, what can what can America do to combat that kind of disinformation? Yeah, good question. So not surprising, um, because, you know, this was something that Russia learned in 2008 with its conflict with Georgia. At that point, they really understood that the United States and the West had the upper hand kind of in the information ecosystem. Um, and it, that was a real turning point, I think, for the Kremlin in their um, desire and their focus on the information domain as a battlefield, um, as a key area of contestation. And so they have leaned extremely hard into trying to shape not just Russian perceptions of what's happening, but also global perceptions. You know, on the domestic side, you know, it is remarkable to see there's polling that says you know, something like 70 or 80% of Russians actually view Ukraine and the United States and NATO as responsible for the current conflict. So, you know, that and that also fits the pattern of Russian disinformation. You know, they do that at home, and then they're looking to take some of those narratives internationally in order to shape uh, those perceptions as well. You know, he has also found a partner in Xi Jinping, who is also kind of repeating and echoing Kremlin talking points about who is responsible for this global crisis. That was a remarkable thing that came out of the meeting with Xi Jinping last Friday, although they didn't recognize or call out Ukraine by name. Um, the Russian talking points were very much evident in the joint statement that they push out. And then, as you said, it's it, I mean, it really is for the Russians, a, you know, a, a global competition um, mm. for ideas. And so they're taking this further afield. Um, the what to do about it is, you know, is is hard. I mean, it, I think there has to be some kind of prioritization of the problem so that the United States isn't, you know, chasing every uh piece of disinformation or every narrative everywhere so that we kind of understand those narratives that are most damaging to U.S. national security kind of foreign policy interests and be able to prioritize. But I think what we have seen, you know, the United States taking this issue to the U U.N., for example, um, mm -hmm. trying to kind of globalize the conflict. They've kind of the Biden administration has described also a full court press with governments all around the world reaching out to Japanese counterparts, the Indonesians. And so they too are engaging and making sure that their kind of narrative um, is also present. Um, and so I think that's part of it, like that U.S. leadership, U.S. presence. I mean, that that so that there isn't such a vacuum that Russia can so mm. easily fill. Mm. Fascinating. You know, I was on a panel um, uh, for the Denver Democracy Summit. And, and it was about exactly this issue, not from a Russian perspective, but in terms of how to stop uh, myths and disinformation. And one of the things, of course, that came up is the longer term uh, problem here is, is media regulation, but also media literacy and digital literacy, which, of course, are big global issues that require decades um, of investment. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind. 
I want to bring in some of our um, viewer questions and um, I'm going to bring up a few all at once. Andrea, I'll come to you first with these. They're all about Russia um, and um, have a listen and then um, maybe try and take on a couple of them at a time. Um, Kurt Weselek um, writes in that it appears that Putin has created a situation where there's no good option for backing down. And yet the going forward costs are likely to be significant. Has he brought about his own downfall? That's his question. SH asks, can Russian forces sustain their current deployment on the border for an extended period of time? And then lastly, not to throw too many things at you all at once, but it's related. Clara Salacarbo asks, why do you think Russian optionality, um, to use your word, Andrea, um, equals the likelihood of escalation? So in other words, is Russia likely to attack just because they can? Or do you think there should be a specific trigger that would uh, sort of conduce a decision to attack? Okay, these are excellent questions, all of them. Um, on the first question about no good options going forward, um, I think, you know, we coming from the intelligence community, our job was to kind of put ourselves in the Kremlin shoes and kind of see the world through Kremlin eyes. And I think we should be careful to assume that Putin doesn't see any good options. Um, I think, you know, when we're talking about an issue that's important to Putin as Ukraine, I think he is willing to incur quite significant costs in order to ensure that Russia stays in Ukraine, or sorry, that Ukraine stays in Russia's orbit. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about um, is, all, you know, when we think about the drivers of this conflict, obviously it is about Ukraine uh, and keeping Ukraine in Russia's orbit. It's also about kind of revisiting the end of the Cold War uh, and kind of Putin wanting to rewrite the security order, the rules that govern the European security order. Um, I also think there's a third piece of this where Putin is thinking about his legacy um, I think that from his view, that he may very well judge that there is no future Russian leader who is going to be willing to take the risks that he is willing to incur mm -hmm. in order to uh, advance Russian greatness. And if that's his thinking, and we, again, we don't know, but if that's where his mind is, um, you know, he very well could be looking to occupy Eastern Ukraine. He significantly eroded autonomy in Belarus. And if he were to take Eastern Ukraine, well, then he's just bumped out Russia's periphery significantly, returned these historically Slavic heartlands to Russia. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm not sure that he that he's looking at this through Western eyes where, where we mm. certainly see that he doesn't have any good options. So, you know, again, we don't know what he's thinking, but um, and, and that's why, you know, I talk about that optionality, which is part of the third question there. He does have options because I think that the key question at this juncture is whether Putin is willing to take something less then his maximalist objectives and walk away and call it a day. And there are options to be had, right? He could do that. Um, the United States has offered to talk about a whole host of issues on the arms control, risk reduction measures. So there are things that he could take short of his demands. The problem and the question is how committed to those maximalist demands is he? And, you know, so he has options, but if he is really intent on achieving his maximalist demands, then I think it does 
suggest that we're moving towards military conflict because so far he hasn't been able to accomplish those objectives through diplomatic means. And I think the pattern of Russian behavior is Moscow tries to get what it wants through diplomacy. And when it can't, it's willing to use military force to get those objectives. And then the final question about posture, that's another key question. I, he I hear different assessments from different Russian military analysts. Some suggest that Russia can't maintain this heightened posture for very long, and so we are getting into a go-no-go no go kind of territory. Um, but others have suggested that it, you know, they could um, at least leave equipment there, pull troops back, and then be back in this position again. So I think there's a lot of kind of flexibility that they could have in terms of their posture. Um, but if it's not going to be an escalation, then we would at least there would be visible indicators of them pulling things back from the border at some point. Wow, that's great. Uh, thank you for taking notes on those questions and answering them all. Um, Amy, let's jump to Belarus now and the 30,000 troops that Russia sent there for military exercises. Um, uh, you published a piece on this this week, of course. Um, officials FP spoke to, including Poland's foreign minister, think that the military buildup could be permanent. So I want to ask you what, what impact that could have and also tie in a question in from Donald Saxon, um, who asks um, whether this placement of 30,000 Russian troops uh, disregards NATO's security concerns. Amy? Um, it definitely disregards NATO's security concerns, um, uh, uh, because if they stay, I mean, that's going to put several thousand Russian troops very close to Poland, which is a NATO member, and the Poles are certainly very nervous about that, and also the Baltic states as well, which are, of course, members of NATO. Um, I mean, the Russians have said that those troops are going to go home, um, but you, there's only so much that you can take uh, uh, Sergei, Lavrov, Sergei Lavrov's word for anything these days. Um, uh, there's definitely fears in Ukraine that, that, that those troops may stay because that would certainly complicate things for them. I mean, Belarus's role um, has been complicated and has wavered over the years. I mean, technically, per their constitution, they're military neutral, but of course, they are a close military ally with Russia at the same time. Um, and that's only deepened uh, since 2020, since 2020, when um, uh, there was these mass protests in Belarus against rigged presidential elections, and that just pushed uh, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko uh, that much further into the the Russian orbit, and he's now essentially beholden to the Kremlin. I mean, he can't, he really can't move um, without without the Russian say so. Um, I think, you know, I spoke earlier to uh, the former uh, Ukrainian defense minister, um, uh, and he said, you know, he said he felt that they might go home, but that certainly strategically, the Russians do want to do want to place troops there. And that northern border that Ukraine has uh, with Belarus is not terribly well defended. Um, so kind of to the, to the northwest of Kiev, that part of the border is, is very marshy, very swampy. And I think there's some expectation that that makes it a little bit more difficult for for any any kind of mass land invasion um but what the, the defense minister and former defense minister andre uh Zagorodnyuk said to me is that it's still a very porous border which you know it could be a potential avenue for things like special forces but also any actors coming in for kind of hybrid activity or destabilization um any efforts by the belarusians to push refugees into ukraine as they did last, late last year with belarus and the baltic states um uh, and and certainly it complicates things for uh, for NATO as well. And something else to look look out for uh, with Belarus, um, which hasn't gotten quite as much attention, is um, this constitutional referendum that they have coming up at the end of this month. Andrea's nodding. Um, uh, which um, you know will allow allow Lukashenko to stay in power until I think it's twenty. 
2034. I mean, that was kind of a given anyway. Um, but there's some crucial changes to the constitution which would remove language about Belarus's military neutrality and also removes the requirement, requirement for Belarus to be free of nuclear weapons. And so um, there's a briefing late in late January with the State Department, and they said they're certainly very worried that that could pave the way for, uh, for Russia to, um, uh, to place nuclear weapons in Belarus as well, which would complicate things for everyone. Mm. Um, Andrea, you know, just to follow up on um, what you were last saying about Putin uh, and how maximalist uh, sort of his stance or uh, the outcomes uh, uh, that emerge from the scenario that he'd be looking for. Some of that, of course, depends on off ramps and how he's able to sell um, a less maximalist outcome to his people, in a sense. Um, uh, tell me if that's right or wrong. But also, um, you wrote this great piece last year in Foreign Affairs um, called The Myth of Russian Decline. And, and in that, you were essentially arguing that Moscow is going to be a persistent power and that it would be wishful thinking um, for Washington to just focus on Beijing. And, you know, assuming that's correct, then is there a case to be made that Putin has already gotten a fair bit of what he wanted out of this crisis in the last two or three months. I mean, in other words, he's reframed the debate. He's brought Russia's concerns about NATO right to the forefront of the international agenda. Um, some of that is exactly what he wanted. Um, so on your first point on off ramps, um, I still think that, you know, there, if Putin wanted to, he could figure out a way to sell um, something less of these maximalist demands to the Russian people. I mean, obviously, you know, he has tremendous control over the domestic narrative. I think there would be many in Moscow, including among the elite, uh, who might be relieved by the fact that he has chosen to de-escalate and take something less significant so long as there was something in it for Russia. Um, so I think, you know, it, I think the off ramps are there should he um, choose to move in that direction and that he would be able to sell that domestically, both to the public uh, and to members of his elite. Um, on, and then on the second point, um, you know, I'm not I don't think at this point in the game that Russia really has gotten much out of this. Um, and if you think about, you know, now NATO kind of is fully kind of reinvigorated and focused on Russia, the unity of the alliance is strong, um, more weapons have flown and or sorry, surged into Ukraine, Ukrainians, I think this is again, only hardening their desire to pursue the Euro-Atlantic trajectory. I mean, so I think at this juncture, if Putin weren't to escalate significantly or find some sort of diplomatic off-ramp, um, that things are not necessarily moving in the right direction for him and that there are some significant loss that he's had at this point. But I think the point about the persistent power is an important one because I think regardless of what happens in Ukraine, we really need a rethink on our Russia policy. Um, there is no signal clearer than Russia's military escalation on the border um, that Putin has no interest in a stable and predictable relationship with the United States. Um, that was kind of the premise that the Biden administration went in with. And this, you know, it clearly rejects that notion. So on the one hand, even if Russia doesn't escalate militarily and we can avert a crisis, I think this is still a new, more brazen, more aggressive Russia. He's learned how to use his military to compel dialogue. 
Um, even if he does draw back from the border, he's going to maintain at least some presence there that he can dial up and dial down the pressure as he likes. So to me, you know, like this is the problem, even if it's, if we avert crisis that isn't going away. And then clearly, if we're in a con, if there is a, a hot war between Russia and Ukraine, that also has significant implications for the United States. We need to have, you know, we have the Biden administration that's already said that they would increase U.S. force posture. Um, so regardless of what happens, I guess my point on this persistent power is this isn't it isn't going away, um, and we do kind of need a, a macro rethink about what that new policy looks like. Right, because it's been the last three months have been anything but stable and predictable. Um, Amy, let me wind our way back to Kiev. Um, given you know the people you've been speaking to in the last week or so. Um, how long can Ukraine sustain this sort of pre-war state of anxiety? You know, it's month three now. Um, that's having an impact on people's psyches, but also serious impacts on business, on insurance, on the investment appetite uh, and beyond. I think there is a decent degree of resilience in Ukraine just by default of having kind of lived uh, with an ongoing war with Russia for eight years now, um, certainly amongst the population. And I think that also feeds into the earlier point we discussed about why, you know, Zelensky maybe doesn't seem quite as alarmed as I think there's just a degree to which they've kind of gotten used to the Russian threat, albeit this time round, it does seem to be of a, of a uh, radically different order of magnitude. Um, it has it has begun to affect the economy. At his press conference, Zelensky mentioned that they've lost something like half a billion um, uh, in investments already. Um, but the Ukrainian economy is relatively well positioned to, to weather this thus far. Their, their reserves are very high. Um, the Grievna did fall. It did dip pretty significantly at the end of January, but it seems to have stabilized again. Um, and so, so far, so good. And I spoke last night with the, um, the director of the American Chamber of Commerce here in Kiev, and he said that their members are, you know, vast majority of them are still here. The message is kind of keep calm and carry on, but they are putting in contingency plans in place. And I thought it was interesting. He said that a lot of their members are, are having difficulty with their head offices that are overseas and in the West because they're getting frantic phone calls from, uh, from, from their head offices who are reading the Washington Post, reading the Wall Street Journal and seeing these very alarming reports. And then their offices in Kiev are saying, you know what, it doesn't look so bad here. So they've had, they've been trying to kind of, uh, trying to bridge that gap. And I mean, certainly business-wise, I mean, it does seem to be largely business as usual. You know, there was a huge launch event yesterday here in Kiev for Dia City, which is this new kind of um, uh, IT accelerator here in Kiev. Um, the American University in Kiev is opening this week. Um, and so they're kind of plodding on uh, business as usual. But um, I do have a, you know, I do have questions about what would happen if this does continue for the long term, more in terms of investment. I think the businesses that are here know what they're dealing with, but I think this is certainly going to put off new investors if this, if this goes on much longer. And I think it, I mean, clearly, as Andrea said, you know, we're dealing with a very different Russia now. We're dealing with a far more aggressive Russia now. And Ukraine is in many ways going to be um, at the front line of, of what, what Russia is looking to do and, and any, any future aggressions. And I think, you know, whilst Ukrainians are kind of used to living with the Russian threat, they also haven't really found a way to kind of to build in resilience and to kind of build in models to respond to res to be very responsive to calibrating to that threat. As I said, there's kind of just no planning going on in Kiev right now, at least publicly. Um, and a lawmaker I spoke to earlier this week, um, you know, she's the example of Israel as being an excellent model for something that Ukraine should look to as a way to to build in a lot of resilience into the into the um, into the population, civil resilience, while also while also growing a thriving economy. Um, so that, I think that's something that Ukrainian officials are, you know, uh, are going to have to look to further down the road. 
For um, for viewers and readers interested in more on the insurance angle, Elizabeth Bra, um, one of our columnists, wrote an excellent piece looking at exactly that, gaming up various scenarios. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. It's always um, good to end on time. So um, I'm going to thank you and close here. Amy McKinnon, uh, thanks for joining us from Kiev. And um, we look forward to more reporting from you in the coming days from there. And Andrea Kendall-Taylor, uh, thank you so much for joining us, your, your insights, um, and of course, drawing on your experience uh, as an intelligence officer um, has just been fascinating to listen to. And that was FP Live from Kiev, part of our FP Live series, which is accessible only to foreign policy subscribers. But we're giving our playlist listeners access, and we're also going to offer a 30% discount on a monthly or annual subscription to Farm Policy. By subscribing, you support the important journalism we do here at Farm Policy. So go to farmpolicy.com forward slash subscribe and use the promo code FPLIVE02 for 30% off. My thanks to Andrea Kendall-Taylor, now the director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for New American Security, for joining us to share her insights. That's all for Farm Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Simone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer for podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 